Welcome to the podcast, Science of High Paid, High Performing, Happy Engineers. The show to help engineers develop all skills non-technical. My name is Aditya Gute and I'm a speaker and a performance coach for engineers to transform them into rock stars because I believe there's a rock star hiding inside each one of you and it just needs to be brought outside to uncover your full potential as an engineer. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today, we have one of my heroes, Jeremy Donovan. When I first started going to Toastmasters like seven years ago, Jeremy was a big guy at Toastmasters and his sheer presence in the room is uplifting. I was even more impressed when I learned about his story and how he started his career as a shy, introverted engineer and is now an incredible speaker. He holds a master's degree from Cornell and MBA degree from Chicago Booth University. He's now serving as head of sales and operations at Salesloft. He's written five books, including an international bestseller, How to Deliver a TED Talk. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. I wow, I'm start- super, I'm super flattered. That was an amazing <laughs> intro. I appreciate that. Of course. And when I started going to Toastmasters like about 20 years ago, I wanted to shake your hands and learn more about you. But I didn't have the confidence uh, you know, to talk to you. But right now I do. And I'm, I'm so glad to have you as my guest on this podcast. I suspect I'm a huge presence more because I'm 6'5", 220 than anything else. But <laughs> yes. <laughs> that could be the reason too. <laughs> So uh, let's, let's start with your story. Like, you know, you were this shy introverted engineer and now you're doing the exactly opposite thing. Like you are head of sales and marketing and, and you talk about this topic. So, so tell us your journey on what, on your transformation. Sure. And I guess I would say I'm still relatively introverted. So I don't know that that ever goes away, nor is that necessarily a problem. There are obviously plenty of people who, who, find a path in career and life that are introverted and, and can find contentment doing that. So as you mentioned, yes, absolutely. I, when I was a kid, I was, I, I was a kid who didn't socialize particularly well. Like I don't exactly know why, but I was uncomfortable around other people. I guess you would call that social anxiety to some extent. Uh, and even to this day, I'm much more comfortable having a conversation one-on-one or in a small group than I am, say, uh, standing in a in a in a bar at a cocktail reception. That's that's not really my thing. I'd rather sit down and have dinner with with you and and share food and wine. So I I because I I don't know. I guess subconsciously I knew I wasn't going to necessarily destined early in my career for a job where I'd have to to communicate a ton. I pursued electrical engineering and in particular semiconductor physics in in uh, undergrad and, and for my master's degree. And then I did what I, what I had planned to do, which is I went and joined a semiconductor company out in Silicon Valley in the late 90s called Xilinx. They're still around and they make programmable logic devices. So I think there are, I'll, I'll preface this by saying, I think there are different paths by which people manage their careers. Well, there certainly are different paths by which people manage their careers. One path is is a highly linear path, right? So you're you're an engineer, you're a senior engineer, you're an engineering manager, you're a director, you're a VP, and so on. 
or there are certainly cases of engineers, and I, I know plenty of technical people, whether they're programmers or other types of engineers who are perfectly content to sort of become a highly compensated, highly successful individual contributor. You don't necessarily have to go down the management path. My father-in-law is a great example of that. He designed cooling systems for power plants, both nuclear and conventional, for 40 plus years and wow. refused every promotion along the way because he didn't want to manage people. He wanted to be the best designer that he could possibly be. And he certainly obviously coached and developed other designers who entered the, the company he worked for. But that was, that was his thing. And I think that's a perfectly great path to pursue. For, for, you know, for me, I've, I've kind of gone in different a sort of different path, which was I realized at the end of about two years working for that semiconductor company that as much as I, I love the semiconductor industry, I had this incredible passion at the intersection of business and technology. And I had the opportunity to move over to a company that was called DataQuest. They were, the, you will know them now as Gartner. So Gartner bought DataQuest in the, in the mid to late 1990s. And today they're, uh, I think, four or $5 billion research advisory consulting and events company that originated in the sort of IT space and semiconductor space, but now covers all sorts of different, uh, of different job functions and so on. So the, the big surprise to me was I, I got into this role and I figured, I don't know, I guess I didn't understand what I was getting myself into. I thought a semiconductor analyst, as a semiconductor analyst, I would write, which I'm comfortable doing. I've, I've always written. And I thought I would analyze data and build spreadsheets and that sort of thing. So I, I thought it would be very comfortable doing that. And of course, about I don't know, sometime within the first couple of weeks of my job, I sat down with my boss and he said, yeah, we've got a conference coming up and and every analyst is expected to, to speak at the conference to, I don't know what it was. It didn't matter whether it was five people or 50 people or a hundred people, <laughs> whatever it was, I, I was absolutely terrified. And I got really worried. I, I thought, oh my goodness, I've made the absolute wrong <laughs> career decision. Can I go back to the semiconductor <laughs> company where I can, I can uh, test, test wafers and write programs and do some statistical analysis and so on. And that's uh, when I saw signs for Toastmasters in the hall that said, hey, come join the public speaking group. <clears throat> and I remember for the first couple times, I think I did what, what a lot of new Toastmasters do is they sit in the back of the room and when tabletop topics come around, you dread being, being selected. You look down when <clears throat> they call for volunteers. Someone called on me to come up. And I, yeah, I got up and I, I can't remember it. I'm sure I was terrified, did some sort of table topic. <clears throat> and that was that. So over the course of the years, I probably spent about 10 plus years in Toastmasters and just gained a degree of comfort. Uh, I'll come back to the career in a second, but uh, the, the Toastmasters, the biggest finding I ever had in Toastmasters came quite late probably around that 10 plus year mark when I was, I was competing in one of the Toastmasters speech contests and 
I, you know, I had been relatively successful in Toastmasters. I had written books on public speaking, what have you. And I got eliminated maybe the first round or the second round of the speech contest. And I was, I'm not a super competitive person. I mean, I'm as competitive as I guess on average, I compare myself to my mother and brother who are hyper competitive. So relative to them, I'm not super competitive, but I was still, it hurt my ego that I had invested so much of my, of my identity into speaking. And yet I got eliminated so quickly by someone who was, I think probably brand new to Toastmasters or relatively new. And I had, I remember I was, I went on a walk with one of my, one of my colleagues at Gartner, where I was working, his name is Jason. And I asked just, Hey, can you give me some candid advice? What, what do you think happened? And effectively what he pointed out was that he pointed out that I should just let go and it's sort of this probably a cheesy expression like let go and let flow or something like that. That's not what he said, but that's what's coming to mind for me right now. But but I, I think there is this act at some point in, of, in public speaking of letting go. It's it, where you're not consciously doing. You're actually allowing your emotions and your thoughts to just flow in a non-critical way. Take take the stakes off of whatever you're doing. It's just that one moment. And that resonated so deeply with me. And that has been my, that's been my approach ever since is that I don't, it's a horrible thing to say, but I don't over-prepare for speaking anymore. And I don't sweat it if, uh, I, sure, I'm proud if, if a speech goes well. Absolutely, I'm human. And sure, I'm, I'm, I'm bummed if it doesn't go well. But I, I don't stake my, my entire ego, uh, fragile ego on, on that any, anymore. So I, I think that's a, that's a critical thing. And it, if you allow yourself to, to just let go, I think those are really incredible words of, it's not an, it's a passive act. It's not an active act. So I'll, I know you asked me the career question, but I, I just wanted to, that's my, that's sort of my best nugget of wisdom is, is the most effective speakers just find presence in the moment. I love that. Uh, totally. I mean, I can't agree more because most speakers, uh, including myself, right, you know, you attach yourself worth to being on the stage and doing a great speech and, and you're worried about how the words are, are flowing out of your mouth. You're constantly thinking how you're going to screw up. And of course, guess what's going to happen? You are going to screw up. And what you're, say, what you're saying is just, I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter how well you do, just being on the stage and being in that state of flow. I think, I mean, that's, that's a great piece of advice. And no one's going to remember, right? The, 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 the world is not about you. Exactly. <laughs> in your mind it is, but no one's going to remember. And even, even now I count, I get frustrated myself because I'll, I'll find myself having too many ums or ahs or likes or you knows, right? Those filler <laughs> words. And I'll be self-critical about that from time to time, but it's just normal. You just be, be human and, and accept yourself for who you are. But I, I did want to get back to the career thing. So, as I mentioned, there are some people, many people who choose to just, I'll call it a deep, deep expertise, right? And my father-in-law being a great example of that in, in a particular area. And there's plenty of programmers and other types of engineers, as I mentioned, who are in that. 
I, I decided to follow this this sort of ladder path that did take me out of engineering. So I, I don't know how relevant it is. I don't necessarily want to encourage your listeners to leave engineering because we need more <laughs> more engineers. But the the ladder path I pursued was I, I basically added. I, I refer to it as adding one word, taking another word away. So think about the semiconductor engineer to semiconductor analyst, right? I dropped the engineer word and I picked up the analyst word. And then I, it was really semiconductor research analyst. So then I dropped the analyst and it was semiconductor research product development and product development at Gartner meant packaging solutions that did, yes, have, have a portal back in the day element to it uh, and also had other um, you know research content that was produced and access to analysts so other entitlements so that so I worked in, in then in product development and began to manage product development and then moved over into product management so I dropped the development added management <laughs> moved over into product marketing so I dropped the management added marketing and then I dropped the product piece and ran corporate marketing for several years. And then I moved finally after 16 years at that company. And that's, by the way, another piece of advice is, uh, is tr at least I think it's especially important at some point in your career and, and is, to, is to stay at the same place. It, it, there's some conditions that we would take a poll of the podcast probably, but for, for why, but try to, try to establish long tenure if possible at a place, which is so rare these days. And maybe that's yeah. a, an old Gen X, uh, <laughs> old Gen X are saying that, but I, I think there's incredible value to that. And it, it really, uh, that, that perseverance at, at a company, I think does, does really count for a lot. And, and it signals to future employers, right. That, that, that there's something unique about you. Um, so I dropped the, the corporate part of marketing and then I added sales. So I was running sales and marketing and then I finally dropped marketing and added <laughs> strategy and operations. What I, what I will say just to sort of conclude the, 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 the this long windedness on my career path, the things that I did always had an engineering undertone to it. So uh, I, I, when I moved to marketing, it was because marketing was transforming from being very brand driven to being very demand driven or demand generation driven. And there's a, there's a light science to demand generation. I, if engineers are listening, I don't want to overinflate it because it's not like calculus, but it can be, it can be statistics, which, which I definitely did employ. And uh, so there are some advanced algorithms and things like that that you could use in marketing, but really it was more about just analytical discipline and discipline uh, against key performance indicators and things like that. So just sort of the mathematical mind and the problem solving mind, the engineering mind helps there. And ditto with sales as I was <clears throat> ultimately attracted to sales for the same reason as that sales went from kind of the gunslinger sales world into a very a much more analytical sales world where you do use predictive algorithms and you you have a much stronger uh, analytical foundation to it so i think the that inner engineer has never left me and by the way to this day actually yesterday i was writing code so to this it's one of wow. my secret secret superpowers is that i still code and <laughs> i've continued to you know that progression i think the first language i learned was was microsoft basic on a DOS OS ages ago. 
and then C and C++ on, on Solaris, on Solaris and Unix, and then Pascal of all weird languages that probably no one remembers, <laughs> Visual Basic, VBA, SQL, Java, JavaScript, Perl, which I still love. I'm a big, wow. a big Perl nerd. And now, of course, Python, which I think is indispensable. So, so yeah, those those things I think, you know, kind of keeping up with that keeps your brain intellectually challenged, and, and it is a secret superpower because it allows, it allows me to just be more productive. Wow. It's very interesting how you choose chose your career path based on what's true for you. Like you still kept your engineering thing, yet you added marketing, sales, depending on what interests you more. So it, it's a very unique path, and you choose to. And I think that's one of the b- biggest thing, right? You have to follow what your uh, heart says, what what your interest is in, and there is no uh, cookie cutter approach on how you can grow your career. Uh, yeah, I think there is no, it's it's to each their own. And I think it's another, I mean, we, we're drifting in and out of life lessons, but I think that was another life lesson that I, I had probably right around the time I learned to to let go as I was public speaking and just allow myself to, to be me and my thoughts yeah. to flow was, I remember when I was younger, I, I think everybody does this, is they they ponder the meaning of life. And I was I was trying to ponder the meaning of life and and there's some great books out there to read. One of them I, I strongly recommend is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I think that book is spot on. It, it talks about three types of meaning. One is the relationships that you have. Two is uh, the work that you do. And then he goes into a very interesting place, which is that, that of how to find meaning in loss and, and hardship and challenge. The so that book aside, for a long time I thought the that sort of the pursuit of happiness was 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 kind of a foundational thing to meaning, and I think around that time, I when I with this whole thing about letting go and being present, I, I think the at least my current thoughts about about what's important is to allow yourself to be content. I think that's, I think content, it's weird, but I, and, and maybe somebody would tell me I'm too glum, but I think contentment is a more powerful, to allow yourself to be content, to let yourself, again, another passive act, be content, is a much more powerful and important thing than the pursuit of happiness which is, I think, a stressful active endeavor. Yeah, I, I love it. And, and recently I heard some, uh, one of these quotes that people pursue the, this a very successful career to become uh, rich or famous, whatever it is, right? But then, at the end of the day, all they are looking for is fulfillment. And what you're really saying is bring that fulfillment into the moment. Allow yourself to be content in the moment and, and, and go with the flow. I, I love that. So, yeah, I don't, I think, right. There's all this research on happiness. I mean, you mentioned sort of quote unquote success and there's all this research on happiness. And my understanding is basically below us. There's, there's, there's an income threshold that above or below which there really is a very weak correlation between, between wealth and happiness. And it's not that, you know, that, that amount of income is not super high in the U S for example, I want to say that income threshold maybe is 
is $50,000, which is, I mean, that's still good money for a lot of people. Um, but that's middle class, right? In, in the US, I, I don't, the poverty line has been moved up over the years to, I don't know what it is, probably 30, 40, $30,000 a year or something like that. So you don't have to be actually that much above what the US defines as the poverty line in order to reach the level of happiness that you'd be equally, you don't realize it, but you'd basically be equally happy there as you would if you had whatever, you know, millions and millions of dollars. In fact, you might be happier than, than like the ultra, there are plenty of miserable ultra wealthy, um, ultra wealthy people. The other, the, my, my other thing about sort of thought about success as I, as I wax philosophical, I have, it's funny enough, yesterday I was out for a walk and one of my old, old friends from back when Adi, you and I met, just called me out of the blue. And this, this guy was a mentor, is, was, is a mentor to me. Um, and we had, but we hadn't talked in a long time. And he gave me this incredible framework that he had learned from somebody else. He does not claim credit of invention, but it, it, it's the seven, seven dimensions of success. And I'll rattle them off real quick. They've stuck in my mind. So career, family, financial, intellectual and artistic, social, um, spiritual, uh, and physical uh, health, physical and mental health. So the, his point of that was basically what you do is you sit down and you think about what are your goals in each one of those areas. You don't have to have goals in every one of those areas, but what are your goals? And you, and you maybe pick one at a time and, and pursue those goals. But my, what, what I think is important about that framework is like, those are seven dimensions of success. And it's, it's very rare in anyone's life that there are all these moments. They sometimes they mass, they last minutes or hours or just days uh, of where all seven of those are all aligned, but that's okay. That's the human condition. I think is is right. Is is uh, you're, it, it, you, you, those things are not necessarily always in harmony, and that's okay, right? It's we would be bored if if we knew everything. <laughs> I, 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 sure. I, yeah, you're making me think deeply about about this stuff. I. Uh, have you, Adi, have you, are you a sci-fi reader at all? I know a lot of engineers obviously are. I'm not a sci-fi right reader, but I read a lot of uh, philosophies and the you know, topics you're talking about right now. There's, I mean, the most, one of the most famous, I think the best-selling sci-fi book of all time is Dune. Mm -hmm. And um, if you, many people obviously read the first book. There's, there are six, six books that were written by Frank Herbert, who was the, uh, the author of Dune. And then his son picked up and wrote a number of books after that. But uh, as, you <clears throat> as you progress through, <clears throat> there's, like a, there's a lot of philosophy in Dune. Uh, but as you progress through the later books of, of Dune, uh, I think when you get to about the, the fourth one, there's this character who, um, uh, for Dune readers, it's, it's uh, Leto II. And he he has he has the ability to he has prescience he has the ability to see the future and he's miserable <laughs> because he's bored is, is that nothing surprises him so 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 much of of what um gives him gives him energy is actually putting himself in situations where he can't predict what will happen wow. and I, I relate that to to these seven dimensions of success is like if all you were was successful 
and you didn't have to do anything, you'd be, you'd probably be bored and unhappy. Like you'd actually be unhappy in a weird way. So it, it is that is there's that the tension of pursuit and the tension of accomplishment somehow balanced with like those moments of make make the moments of contentment so much more powerful. Wow. I, I mean, I, I, I feel super inspired. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it's a classical pla- paradox we have in life, right? You know, when there is so much un- uncertainty, we are so much fearful, but that's what, you know, keeps you moving ahead in life. I love it. So um, I want to go back to the, uh, you know, the types of engineers you were talking about. I think you mentioned about your dad, who's like super uh, deeply interested in being an engineer. And that's what he did for the rest of his career. And there's a second type of engineers, the, someone who wants to, uh, an engineer who wants to move into business field at some point. So uh, I want to clarify maybe uh, a common, uh, I don't know if it is a misconception or if it's the truth, but I would love to hear your opinion. They said that once you hit um, uh, you know, your 50s and 60s, it's hard for an engineer to keep growing in the uh, technical field if someone is purely technical. I want to hear from you. How true is that uh, from your experience? I don't know. And I don't, unfortunately, I've, having moved into the this business side of things, I have not had as much interaction with engineers, especially those who are later in their career. I, I guess, I, yeah, we'd have to have my father-in-law on the show to, <laughs> to tell you because he certainly worked into his 50s and 60s. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're right. There is, I think somebody did research on, for example, when Nobel Prize, to the extreme, right? When do Nobel Prize winners write the, the paper or do the research uh, that is the, is the thing that earned them the Nobel Prize? And I think for so many Nobel Prize winners, that, that, accomplish, that, that, that fundamental discovery that they made was often in their late 20s, potentially early 30s. But yeah, but I, again, that, that's sort of a three, four or five standard deviations from the mean kind of a thing, right? So uh, I don't think they should necessarily measure. I'm 47. Uh, so I don't, I don't, I don't know yet, but I do feel like, I feel as though, I mean, I'm definitely still learning technical things. Absolutely. Right. I'm still picking up um, new programming languages. I'm still learning new algorithms. Uh, I, these sorts of things I think are, uh, you know, I think I'm still doing. I do feel that the amount of energy I have is not what it was, right? Like, I could, pro- when I was younger, I could probably just, uh, you know, focus for so many hours on on learning something new, and I have to take probably more breaks now. I need a proper night's sleep, or I can't function as well. So, yeah, I think you need more body recovery time as you get older. But I think, I think, I mean, I, I think I still have the flexibility to learn. I mean, one of my, one of my pursuits right now is just getting, getting better at data science that I've always had a good foundation in statistics. And, you know, now those worlds of statistics and coding are, are combining into the, the machine learning natural language processing and so on world. And I'm not having any great difficulty absorbing those concepts. So yeah, I don't know yet, but I, I, I think 
I think um, I'm not. I don't think I'm super concerned about that. Thank you. And so, so let's talk about the second set of engineers, right? The engineers who also wants to shift into the business field. And I think most engineers fall into this, uh, in this into this, uh, unless and until someone is super, is his life purpose is like being an engineer, they probably go into their sixties. But most people kind of want a combination of both engineering and business. But again, you know, many of them uh, feel shy speaking up. They are uh, so. So, what is what are some of the skills that you think that engineer needs to develop in order to be able to pursue opportunities in the in the business field? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I also start with this thing, which is I meet so many people and and they ask me about they they think they need to become a manager or a director or a VP or whatever. Like they think they need to do that because that's the, that's what they've been told is, is, is equated with career success. And I, I turn it back to them and I say, yeah, maybe, uh, but it depends. I, I think the moment you choose whether or not you want to be a manager or not, I think you have to answer the following question, which is, will I, derive more joy from architecting, directing what other people that, that, that other people are, are learning and growing and creating than if I were to, to create on my own. And I think for engineers in particular, that, that's a really important question because many, I mean, I, I became an engineer because I love to build stuff. Uh, take it apart, put it back together, whatever, create. Like uh, the, the creation thing is a very strong um, part of, of my, uh, my identity. So, and I think for engineers, that's, that's probably more true than on average, right? That they, they became engineers because they like to design and develop and create and, and feel that sense of personal accomplishment. So I think that's a key question is, is put aside what other people define as quote unquote success professional success, because remember I said there's, you know, career, family, financial, social, blah, blah, blah. Um, and ask yourself, you know, at this moment in my life, because I don't think the whole five-year plan, 10-year plan is necessarily that, that helpful. At this moment in my life, do I want to, uh, will I get more joy from, from leading teams of people who create rather than creating something on my, um, you know, the, the sort of the granular piece on your own. And then to answer your direct question, I mean, absolutely, uh, I, uh, there's no revelation in this that the soft skills become incredibly more, incredibly important. I, I think about leadership in three, I mean, being an engineer, I, I split everything into frameworks and so on. So <laughs> I think about leadership in three vectors, if you will. <clears throat> One is strategic leadership and strategic leadership especially for engineers would include things like qualitative and quantitative problem solving. I think those are, those are probably the most important, uh, whether you're an engineer or not in, in business is, is being able to basically identify what's going on and then recommend solutions to those, to those problems, not necessarily technical solutions, but right business solutions. And there are other elements of, of um, strategic leadership. Uh, then operational leadership, which is, Driving for results, so establishing your key performance indicators, your KPIs, and then project management, I would also put in there. And then operational leadership would also include all the 
the kind of technical skills that are relevant to your particular domain. But then the third area, right, is the is people and professional leadership. And on on the sort of professional personal part of that, it is things like written and verbal communications. And on the very importantly, on the people part, it is it is being learning learning to delegate, learning to coach, um, and so on. I think of those skills, the the hardest for me, and I've observed it in other people, the hardest thing f- for them to to do is right. You're you're a high performing engineer. Someone taps you on the on the back and says, "Hey, you should you know why don't you try management." And it's the same thing. And I work in the world of sales right now. It's the same thing. You take top salespeople, and then someone taps you on the shoulder and says, "Hey, uh, why don't you think about being a sales manager?" And it's really, really hard for those people early on, including myself, when that first happened to me, to start to me- to start to delegate. And I'll I'll give a quick tip on that, and then I'll I'll be quiet. The the um, the breakthrough for me for delegation came when I read this this book. I think in the book is called the the new one in, one minute manager, but it, it talks about a framework called situational leadership, and. It, it basically is that you want to you want to coach to the skill and the will of the individual on the project at the given time. But the really important part of that is you think about skill and will has to do with if someone's low skill, then you then you they need more how if someone's low will, they need more why. And and but the, the, has, the way this relates to delegation is that as a leader. You, if someone is super high skill and, and and super high will, you just sort of need to tell them, especially high skill, you just need to tell them why, and they're going to go for it. That's a rare, that happens rarely. Most of the time, you need to tell the why and the what. And I, the what is the goal, right? What are they trying to accomplish? And then you just sort of support them but let them, this is, the, you empower people by letting them figure out how. You don't want them to fail. So if they're super low skill, you do need to teach them how, but most of the time their skill level is, is fine and they can figure things out. So I think that's the key, one of the, also the keys to, to delegation is like, let go. I think you also have to accept, it's hard for high performing engineers that, yes, you will, on any given task, you will probably be able to do that task faster, that one task faster and better potentially than, than any one of your direct reports. I mean, hopefully you hire people who are smarter than you and better than you where you don't have that issue. But, but yeah, you'll have one or two people on your team who are smarter and better than you. But if you've got a team of five to 10 people, it's unlikely that all five to 10 <laughs> will be better than you. So on any one task, people may be better than you. Oh, sorry. On any one task, you're probably better than, than most of the people, save one or two. But what you're not is you're not better than five or 10. So I think that's the thing that you need to understand is, is you can't allow yourself to get in that mode of I can do this faster and better. What you need to do is you need to understand that you should delegate everything that you're not uniquely qualified to do. If you're uniquely qualified to do it, then you got to do it. Uh, but you should delegate everything you're not uniquely qualified to do. Yeah, I, I think that's a great piece of advice for new managers. What are some of the skills that the engineers can immediately start working on? 
for someone who has no experience in this management, what are the small steps that they can take to acquire some of these skills? And how important is an MBA to be able to acquire these? Yeah, uh, certainly different, different questions. I think uh, I'm always indirectly answering your questions, I guess, and then answering your questions. <laughs> this time I'll do it in reverse, okay? So I'll, I'll answer the MBA question and then I'll answer the other one in a little bit more circuitous of a way. So, and I'll do this with this, I think with a couple of stories. So I was in my whatever mid-ish 20s or so, and I was working as a as that semiconductor industry analyst and I had the, the pleasure at the time of, of meeting a, a high-powered venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road in, in Los Altos in California. And uh, he invited me to lunch, which I was thought was super cool. And, and during the course of lunch, I asked him this very question. I asked him, do I need an MBA to be, to be a VC or to be successful in, in you know, business professional life? And he said no, and then I asked him, "Did you get an MBA?" And he said, "Yes, from Harvard." <laughs> so I, I think that's like the, I, I think, I mean, that was so telling to me. And and so yes, I did go on to get an MBA, but um, I think that also is is again if, to each person their own their own circumstance, which is. Um, a lot of people go to business school. A, a very good reason to go to business school is in fact to change careers, right? So back when I went, it was a lot of consultants becoming bankers and then bankers becoming consultants right now, or the, the last few, right now is a crazy time, but, but the last few years, as I understand it, it was basically consultants and bankers wanting to become product managers at places like Amazon and Google and, and Facebook and so on, Slack, you name it, right? Zoom. Um, so, so that was kind of the, the, there was always this career switching element. There was this sort of a, a socialization element uh, and so on. My experience was very different because I was working at the same time. I was going full-time to school. I had a new, our first child or we had our first child in, in school also. So, and I was super buttoned down that I was, I was focused on econometrics and statistics in business school, um, which, was, which was quite unusual uh, as well. Uh, I cherish business school um, and I cherish it because it transformed the way that I think that, that I'm a, uh, I strive to learn and, and grow and develop. And I learned and absorbed so much, so many frameworks and, and I really came into my own in, in statistics, as I, as I mentioned there with, and there are techniques that I continue to use to this day that, that are, I would also describe as like, there's, they're relatively simple things that, you know, the hard part's always getting the data in order, running the algorithm on, on, on a program these days takes, takes like no, no special talent. It's all about knowing which algorithm to run. And uh, like that, those things have paid off humongous dividends for me. So, uh, so yes, I recommend it, but maybe, you know, you have to have a reason and your reason can be learning. Your reason can be social and building your network. Your reason can be job changing. But I, so I, I think it, it, it comes in, in that context that that's so important. 
You asked me a preceding part, and since my buffer size is like one question, what was the preceding part? Because I answered the latter part of your question. Yes, uh, my previous question was, how, what are some of the action items engineers can take uh, to acquire these business skills? And my other question was, how important was an MBA which already answered? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and here comes my circuitous part, because I wanted to answer, that was why I put the second part off, was because I wanted to answer the direct part before I go circuitous. So the circuitous thing, here's another story for you, um, mm -hmm. which will get at it. I was sitting in a leadership training session. This is also probably 10, 15 years ago, at least 15, I think. And I had just read that, that book, Strengths Finder. And it's a very popular book. People, uh, if you haven't heard of it, it, you basically, I mean, it's less of a book and more of a test. So you take this test and it tells you, it tells you like what your strengths are. But one of the principles in that book is, is that you should basically put all your energy into your strengths and ignore your weaknesses. And I can't remember if it's that book or other books that talk about, I mean, Michael Jordan is very much in the news right now because I guess the documentary that was put out. So uh, people will say something to the effect of like, you know, let's assume that Michael Jordan is not the world's greatest chef and did not have the potential to become the world's greatest chef. So had he, had that been what he pursued and maybe that was a weakness that he tried to overcome was his cooking skills, then, then we wouldn't, you know, have the, the, the glory of, of the Chicago Bulls and, you know, the, whatever it was, the 19, 1980s and 90s. Um, because so that that's like the argument is like don't don't focus on your weaknesses, and I came into that leadership training session. I was sitting across from someone who was probably ten years more experienced than me at the time, and I I struck up a conversation during one of the breaks. It had nothing to do with the leadership training at all. It was just break time, and I said, "Hey, mm -hmm. I just read this book, and it said concentrate on all your strengths. Something does not feel right about that because because I fixate on my weaknesses and." everyone I know fixates on their weaknesses. So can, can we as humans all be wrong? <laughs> and, and he said, he said, no, uh, I still remember his name. His name was Eric. He said, no, what, what you need to do is the following. He said, spend 80% of your time doubling down on your strengths. Absolutely. But what you need to do is you need to figure out what is your, at the very least, what is your next desired role? And, and potentially like, what is your ultimate goal? What's your ultimate job goal? And spend that extra 20% working on the minimum, on, um, to bring a weakness that is critical in your next role to minimum proficiency. So, so that circuitous beginning to answer your question is, is um, I think that's the key is for any engineer who wants to go into, into leadership, they need to ask themselves for them, as an individual, what is the what is the gap that they have that they need to bring to minimum proficiency for the next desired desired role? If it's in the soft skills domain, uh, for I mean, pretty much every manager needs to be skilled in in um, communication, right? Needs to be skilled in you know some level of 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 kind of establishing KPIs, needs to be skilled in developing and coaching others, needs to be skilled in, um, you know, there's so many things. I think you just have to pick, yeah, what, what the gap is for you. If it is, now let me go specific, which is like, 
if it is communication, then what? So if it is communication, then I think Toastmasters is incredibly valuable uh, to this day. There is something very artificial about Toastmasters in that you're kind of getting up in front of people and speaking. And it's not a, unlike business, which is you're 99.9% of the time sitting down at a, at a table or on a Zoom where everyone's talking, asking questions, it's very dynamic. So I, I think the type of speaking that you learn in Toastmasters is not like the world champion of public speaking, that type of speaking where you'd give a five to seven minute speech is would be ridiculous in a business context. <laughs> but the, the, that's not the point. The point is, is to be comfortable speaking on your feet and, and I actually find, I think the table topics are the way more valuable part of Toastmasters in the business context, because that forces you to be comfortable speaking on your feet on the fly for short bursts of time. So yeah, I would say Toastmasters with a focus on table topics is probably my, my best recommendation there. And then the other ones, it's it's just like you know it's just like in 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 the technical side of engineering you're going to learn most of what you're going to learn on the job right because you you need to solve something and you need the experience of solving it in order to to truly acquire that skill thank you so much uh, jeremy donman uh, you have discussed some deep stuff, like the mindset behind becoming successful. And also you gave some, you know, actionable stuff, join Toastmasters and the different skills that an engineer can acquire uh, if, if he wants, if he's uh, considering a career in business. So before we wrap this up, do you have anything, any other nuggets you want to share with the audience yeah, I, I sort of, I, I, I was, I loved your questions. It made me deeply introspective. People have not asked me those types of questions in a long time. They mostly ask me about sales and sales strategy these days. <laughs> I would leave you with something I said in the middle, which, which I think is, is the thing that's so hard for people is find that it's to, is to find moments where you allow yourself to be content and, um, yeah, that's it. I think that's the best pearl of wisdom I have. Yeah, I, I love that piece of wisdom, and and it it is it shows in everything that you did from you know mastering the speech at Toastmasters to how you navigated your career. You were actually it's, it seems like you have made all your decisions based on that one thing, and that could be very vague to many engineers because they want logical framework. But when, if they get it, I think it could be incredibly helpful. Uh, for them to uh, to be content and uh, have a per powerful career at the same time. So thank you again, Jer Jeremy Donman. It's a pleasure having you with us. Thanks, Sadi. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Hopefully you learned some important nuggets to uncover the rock star from inside of you. If you have any questions, you can reach me on my email at aditya at who we are dot io it's a d i t y a at who we are dot io